The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we do sing out how great you are. What a glorious privilege that we have to sing that great and glorious truth. You are awesome and mighty and good and gracious, tender and near and high and lifted up and omnipotent. You are all those things and more. And we, your people here, can sing that in joy. Because you are Savior of us, your people. Remove off of us all, all threat of condemnation and deliver us into your favor forever. So we sing how great you are, what a privilege it is to be in Christ, to be saved in him. What an awesome truth. Bless your name. Lord, we ask now that as we come and look at this text that you would speak to us about this great salvation that you have worked. You would cause us to understand perhaps some new piece or perhaps some piece newly. Help us to understand, but more than that, Lord, help us to rest and to worship The text that we have before us concludes with David rejoicing. Would you cause us, your people, this morning to finish rejoicing? To think all this through and to have it rest on us in in great delight. For that, we need your help, Lord, because we are uh, we are often blind, we're often limited in our insight and cool in our affections. We are people of flesh, and we are often just not very impressed with glory, with true glory. So give us help, Lord, this morning. We are also people who are easily distracted, distracted in our speaking and distracted in our listening. So would you please guide this time and make it straight Guide the words that I say and, and the control the ears with which we all hear. We would hear you speak accurately a message that is fit for where we are and who we are, that is faithful to the text and that encourages and enlightens. I need your help with that too, the Lord, this morning. So we look to you for it. We ask you to exalt your name. We ask you to build your church, and we ask you to call others who are not yet in it, call them in. So save and sanctify for our good and for the glory of you yourself, who is worthy of all praise. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Spirit, and thank you, Son. In the name of the Son, Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 2 Samuel 22 and the psalm of praise that we find there. It it is a a song, psalm, very similar to Psalm 18. A little different, but we're going to stay focused on this chapter, the one that's before us in our text. We're going to try to keep it, approach it by keeping in mind the place that it, it, it sits and the function that it fulfills here in our study of First and Second Samuel. It's here in this, this final summarizing section, as we have noted, the last few chapters of Second Samuel. When we ended in chapter uh, 20, we're no longer, from then on, we're no longer working chronologically through any particular issue. Rather, what we're seeing is the author gathering together different events from the, the life of David to, to carefully present them to us for, for a purpose, for a point. He wants to remind us of some things and reinforce some things as we, as we look at David. 
reminding us that he is in fact God's righteous chosen king, the answer to the problem. The problem that we saw raised particularly in the book of Judges, but then in the first part of of the book of Samuel, what we call 1 Samuel also. He is the answer to the problem of no king in the land and no righteousness and no justice and no peace and no hope, but only subjugation and fear from enemies. Rampant wickedness. He's the answer to that. David and his house and his son after him. And we do, need be, we do need to be reminded of that at this point because we just finished weeks and weeks, months of, of examining many chapters that show all kinds of sin in David. We saw a lot of that. And so we need to be reminded that he is in fact, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 21, he is in fact the righteous king just after God's own heart. We saw him there offer up right sacrifice to turn away the wrath of God. And last week, as we looked at the end of chapter 21, we saw, in a way, the story of David and Goliath revisited as David fights and David's men fight giant after giant after giant after giant. He is the deliverer from the great enemies. In particular, in this case, as a lamp that shines on his people, changing them so that in his power... His mighty warriors actually rise up and slay the giants. A great change from the first time around when David killed Goliath himself and there was no other warrior found. David's the king that we need. He works change in people that leads to deliverance. And now as we come to chapter 22, we focus on God's deliverance of David himself. This whole chapter is one great song sung by David, all 51 verses of it, sung by David in celebration of God's deliverance, a reminder for us about how God did in fact save him and did in fact establish him and his kingdom. So it's, it's central here to this final section of the book of Second Samuel. And it actually, if you think about the whole book, it serves as a mirror at this end. It serves as a, a bookend to at the very beginning, back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, another song of praise sung by a woman named Hannah. Way back in the beginning, this woman, you perhaps recall her barren, no children, symbolizing barren Israel lost amidst all of its trouble, and she cried out to the Lord, Give me a son, and I will return him to you as a servant. She cried out, and in her misery, God heard her, gave her a son, Samuel. And when she returned him to the Lord to be a great servant for the Lord, she sang in praise, celebrating God's deliverance of the people, the raising up of a son. And she sung prophetically about what God would one day do with his king. She sung that in a time when there was no king in the land. They didn't have kings, but she's singing about how God would raise up a great king and would bless his anointed and deliver the people from evil. She sang about what would happen, and here now at the end, David sings about what did happen. You delivered me, he says. Set me on a throne and delivered your people. That's what the passage is about. 2 Samuel 22. It's a long psalm. I'm going to read the whole thing and then pass back through it to make sure that we understand some of the the structure of it. But we're going to be working towards this this one great point, as as I said in prayer there, that we would come out the end of this where David comes out. We would come out praising him. So here's the the main point that I'm working towards this morning, that God would leave us with this point. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for great salvation He brings. People of God, praise the Lord. Great salvation He brings. I say that and I think some of us might be inclined to think, yeah, of course. No. What I mean is, praise the Lord. 
great salvation he brings. May God leave us there at the end today. That's what we're going to move towards. Let me read all, all of this psalm. 2 Samuel chapter 22. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. From His temple He heard my voice and my cry came to His ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of His nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me, and from His statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before Him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in His sight. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. 
and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but He did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise You, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to Your name. Great salvation He brings to His King and shows steadfast love to His anointed, to David and His offspring forever. The Word of the Lord. It is an awesome psalm. And one of the difficulty with preaching, one of the difficulties with preaching the Psalms in general is that the Psalms often call out for, for calm reflection and meditation and, and, and preaching is, is so quick. It's only an hour long and then it's over and it's not enough time to think about each little phrase and each turn of word. It's, they're poetic. They're, they're, they're beautiful phrases in, in beautiful phrases in a, in a beautiful structure. And, and when you preach it, it, it reduces it to something that's in, in a way inadequate. And so I want to encourage you. I'm going to preach the psalm, of course, but I encourage you, don't let this go today. Take this home. There will be phrases in here that caught your attention when it was read that I'm not going to say anything about. Go think about them. Go meditate before the Lord on that phrase, on that line. Beautiful. But I need to capture the whole thing. And so I'll approach it in perhaps a slightly different way than than you might by yourself. We look at this whole psalm first to catch the lay of the land. Verse 1 tells us that this is a song, a psalm, that's what the psalms are, poetic songs, that David spoke to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. That's all we get on, on the timing of it. But probably because Saul's so large in his mind, it was pretty early in his reign. doesn't tell us much more than that. We know that he ran from Saul for about ten years. was constantly teetering on the brink of death during, during that whole time. But this now presents a to us as accomplished. He has been saved. He has arrived peacefully and so he sings. And it is an exuberant song of praise. It just explodes in in praise. Verses 1 through 4 in a dozen different ways load up words. They are are paired in, in certain ways to give us certain impressions. But they load up words that all are saying essentially the same thing. Rock and stronghold and fortress and refuge and deliver and save and save and Savior. You can't miss it. God has protected and rescued him from violent threat. He's a rock, a refuge, and a shield. And David just shouts that out. And he needed actually to be delivered because he knew the danger that he was in. He felt it five, six, seven. He talks about his distress and what it was like, and David knew this well, what it was like to have death as, as tentacles from an octopus reaching up to grab him or as waters from a flood rushing up and, and piling up around his neck. David 
We recall some of the incidences. He, he's in a room and Saul hurls a spear at him and he has to stay. That happened a couple times. We recall Saul chasing him and David and his men are on one side of a, of, of a peak and, and Saul's army is on the other side and Saul's called away at the very last moment. They're almost caught again and again and again. David knows what it's like to have death right there. Death, not unemployment. Death, mean death. Just right there. For decades. Ten years in the run from Saul, a few years before that he lived with Saul. After that, he still had struggled coming into the kingdom in its fullness. He was king for seven years, still in conflict with the rest of Israel. We don't know the timing exactly, but David knew trouble. And in the day of his distress, he calls out to the Lord. Verse 7, And the Lord heard and stormed down to the earth and raged to save his beloved son. That's the imagery of verses 8 to approximately 20. The Lord Almighty furious. Now this, again, this is poetry, and it's presented as if it's a very dramatic one-time thing. But we know if we think about decades that God came repeatedly to save him, and that most of the time, as we saw as we covered all those chapters, most of the times it had very little smoke, lightning, thunder in it. Most of the time it was simple providence. You recall the incident where David's fleeing and there's a great big wide open plain. He's got the last little place of refuge and Saul's army's pressing up on him and a messenger arrives and says the Philistines have invaded the land and Saul has to leave. No smoke, no thunder, no lightning. <sighs> Saved. This is depicting a reality in a poetic way that often doesn't go seen with the naked eye. just looked like a messenger arrived and Saul left. This is the Lord storming down to earth to save His Son, to bring Him out into a broad, safe place with good footing because He delighted in me. End of verse 20. This is the Son in whom He delights. And that leads us then into the middle of the psalm, the central section of the psalm, verses 21 to about 31, where David elaborates on the Lord's delight in and rescue of him. And over and over again we see something like, the Lord dealt with me positively according to my righteousness, the cleanness of my hands. Verses 21 and 25 say that. Which means something, we note this, which means something very specific on the lips of a faithful man in the Old Covenant. This isn't going to be a time we talk about all the differences in Old Covenant and New Covenant, but there's an important thing that we need to understand here because we often hear something like that and misunderstand. He does not mean, I earned my way into your favor, and so you delight in me and rescue me. That's how we often hear that, and people build whole religions on that idea. That's not what he means. Rather, he means as a man who is already in the covenant from birth by God's choice. He didn't earn his way into this covenant. He was born into it, in the old covenant. I'm already in this covenant and I have now walked in that covenant Verse 22, I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have kept covenant with you and not wickedly departed from my God like, say, Saul. Or tons of people in the period of the judges. I'm in this covenant and I have embraced all your rules and statutes that are before me. Verse 23, I don't turn away from them. I embrace them and I am blameless in that sense. Not sinless. Blameless. Not guilty. 
When a faithful man under the old covenant sinned, what did he do? He repented and offered right sacrifice and was wiped clean and could enter again into the sanctuary or the tabernacle and come into the presence of the Lord and worship. Blameless. And so he kept faithful covenant. Did he sin? Of course. In fact, we've seen a lot of it. And even if all the the worsen that we've seen post-dates this psalm, David knows full well he's a sinner. He's not sinless. He's blameless under the covenant. I have never turned away from you and rejected you. And so in keeping with the covenant, including the sacrifices to cover my sin, I have kept in the place where, as you describe, Lord, the whole last third of the book of Deuteronomy, faithful covenant keeping brings blessings. Rejecting the covenant brings curses. I have kept to the covenant and walked after you. And so you... You faithful God, you, you've poured blessing on me. Just like you said you would. I have held blameless to the covenant. And you, you yourself, verse 26, are blameless towards the blameless. No one can accuse you of doing wrong. He's walked with God in the covenant and has received the blessings that God promised. God who is merciful to the one who shows himself merciful, blameless to the one who shows himself blameless. To the one who is purified, God deals with him purely. But the other side of that equation, the haughty, the crooked, gets a different God. What he's saying is that you, Lord, have dealt with me faithfully. You've blessed me and strengthened me such that I can run and climb. can run against a troop, he says in verse 30. Climb over a wall. Your way is perfect. What we see in the next few verses then is David not only protected, but made into a warrior. So we still have the, the saving from enemies theme, but now it's, it's enhanced. Not only is David shielded, But David is made into a warrior and we see him fighting and running, pursuing his enemies and striking them down. Empowered by God, as verse 40 makes really clear, you equipped me with strength for the battle. It's all from the Lord's power. But David fought and fought successfully, so successfully even that in the end, foreigners, other nations, come bowing down to him. Beneath his authority. The Lord saved him from death and made him great. And as he revisits the themes from the beginning of the psalm, the Lord is a rock who saves from violence, a refuge. He ends by explicitly declaring what's been implied throughout verse 50. For this I will praise you, O Lord, this great salvation. That's that's the psalm. Awesome psalm that should leave us seeing a a great salvation and then praising God for it. So I'm going to unpack this now by making three observations. Three, which will all be a little bit shorter so I can make three of them in the time I have. So here's the first one. Concerned with the large, broad scope of, of the psalm. The Lord is faithful to save the son of his delight. The Lord is faithful to save the son of his delight. Right in the middle of the psalm, which structurally is an important place to sit, right in the middle of the psalm, verses 21 to about 28, 29, 30, emphasize God's faithfulness in blessing David with salvation as he held fast to the covenant. And the point here, this is, I emphasize this when we walk through it, but the point here is that David is not boasting of his own righteousness. We often misread something like that. This happens a lot in the Psalms. David's not boasting of his own righteousness. He's honoring God's faithfulness. 
says, you have kept covenant with me. You have come through where you said you would. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from guilt, and the Lord has rewarded me accordingly. Testimony, you can take it to the bank. He is faithful to keep his covenant promise. He keeps his word. He may discipline. He he may bring consequence. Sure, of course. But he saves his faithful covenant partner, the son in whom he delights. That's the point of emphasis. The Lord is faithful. We see him save this son from something and to something. He saves him from and to from every attack, from every enemy, from every threat, from every adversity, as David said back in chapter 4. He has proven Himself again and again and again and again. He is my rock and my fortress, my Savior, my Deliverer. Any word you can think of, that's what He is to bring me out from this clutching, surrounding, deadly, threatening trouble. What a faithful Savior He has been to me a constant and sure deliverer. And He saves me to something. He saves His Son to greatness. This is an important, perhaps subtle, but important difference. He saves Him from danger. From the tossing and the turning and the clutching of the, of the waves, the, the tentacles of death. He saves him from that, but more saves him to a mighty throne and to the rule of the nations. The difference here is the difference between shield and sword. God is a, a shield. He saves me from attack. And he saves me to sword bearing. To offense conquering. Both are here in the psalm. Both God faithfully employs on on David's behalf. We see the shift beginning in verse 29. The Lord is my lamp, shining, lightening my darkness, which leads to, which is empowering. He says there, for by you I can run. By my God I can leap. He is a shield. That's true. But verse 35, He trains me for war so that I am strong. And David then, verse 38, pursues his enemies, destroys them, consumes them utterly, thrusts them through so that they fell, beat them as fine dust, crushed them into the mire of the streets. This is David the warrior, a totally different image than David running and cowering and hoping to live one more day. Do you see the difference? Both are what God did for him. He saved him from outnumbered, on the run, starving without any place to lay his head to every enemy around I crush beneath my foot and assume the throne over them. And the ones who are still alive come cowering to pay homage That's totally different. He did both. Saved him from and to greatness. David as ruler of the nations with foreigners bowing before him. The fullness of the great salvation that God faithfully bestowed on David. God kept his word. He promised to raise up a Savior over His people and He did it in the Son in whom He delights. He exalts Him over every power that rises up against Him, makes Him ruler over them and conqueror of them, King of the nations. And for this I will praise you everywhere on the globe says the king. Great salvation, steadfast love, faithfulness. 
words are essentially synonymous. Steadfast, consistent, faithful love you have shown to me and to my line after me. I'll praise you forever for this. It is too small a thing that you would simply save me from trouble. You have made me to be a ruler over all of the Gentiles. I hope that I'm layering on some language that you are picking up. I hope. Because this is not ultimately ending in this David who died in approximately 950 B.C. It is true of this David, and it is true of the house of David after him. He promised it would be in covenant in 2 Samuel 7. But there is another one who is far more the object of God's delight and far more faithful to the covenant than this David or anyone ever was. A king, a son of David, who is not blameless because he rightly applied the sacrifices to his sin and therefore kept covenant, but who is blameless inherently who is righteous and has clean hands inherently and never had to apply sacrifice to any of his own sin. This son, who is his delight, is the far, far greater David, one that we must always have in mind when we read the Old Testament. When we read about David, who must be right there before us. This David indeed was pleasing to the Lord. This David who was covered under the blood of bulls and goats and therefore was right in the eyes of God. But the son who had no need of bulls and goats but offered his own blood, that's different. A far different son. A far different relationship. Righteous and holy and blameless and pure in and of Himself, who kept the perfect word of the Lord perfectly, who was humble in every way perfectly, inherently. This is My Son whom I love. This Son is the Son with whom I am well pleased. God spoke from heaven in the eyes of all humanity to declare this Son, the one whom I delight in, this one in particular. I will faithfully save Him from all of His enemies. This Son knew what it was to have death stalk him. The cords of death that reached up around David, nothing compared to the cords of death that reached up around the son of David. The tide that washed up against him. He walked through the wilderness for 40 days and Satan himself personally stood in front of him, tempting and luring Subtly, cleverly, powerfully attacking. And he saw right in front of him death. Oh, just on the other side of a beautiful offer. But death, he saw it right there. And he walked away from there, but but the threat did not leave. Because he walked out into a world that at least misunderstood him. And as it came into the light, hated him and opposed him. And reached out to grab him and hang him on a cross. And send him into the grave under supposedly the permanent judgment and condemnation of God. As the cords of death reached up and grabbed him and pulled him into the grave. This son knew what it was like to be flooded over with death. Not for his own sin. But the Lord, faithful to this Son, said, I will deliver you. I will protect you from all attack. Bring you out. I will not abandon your soul to Sheol, but I will bring you up. In passionate fury, I will defeat evil. 
and rescue this son from death, but not just from death to a throne. This is the son who comes out of death to a throne to reign over all of the nations. Omnipotent, mighty, holy, pure, in power. I, the Lord, am faithful to save the son of my delight. And we could stop there, and that would be enough warrant for praise. Because praise, rightly understood, is the acknowledgement and the declaration, and rightly, the delight in that which is good. And that is good. That this righteous Son would be faithfully delivered from death and given dominion over everything. That is right and that is good. That is praiseworthy above all things anywhere ever. We, we could stop there and if that was the end of the story, the right response would be, For this I will praise you, O Lord. You have delivered your Son and enthroned Him to reign. That is right. That is appropriate. That is good. Praise your name. That would be enough. But awesomely, that's not all. There is something that should not be That should not be. You have a deliverance in this deliverance. That should not be. But it is. That's a marvelous second observation. Here it is in a sentence. In this saved King, God provides the salvation that we need. In this saved King, God provides the salvation that we need. We find salvation too in Him. In the passage, the saving that the king experiences is not only a personal blessing to him. When he is saved from trouble, from death, remember on the run, he's got a bunch of people with him. When he is saved, so too are they. And sometimes he had thousands of people with him. His fate is their fate. His deliverance is their deliverance. His danger is their danger. His pending doom is their pending doom, and His rescue is their rescue. When God saved David, God saved them too. And when the king is enabled and then made great to crush his enemies and subjugate the nations, this has obvious ramifications for the people of Israel. When foreign nations bow down to David, they bow down to his kingdom, to all of Israel. All of Israel is triumphant and powerful and safe and on top of the world, so to speak. So David's people, as a whole, are delivered from wicked Saul. Are delivered from evil foreign powers. Work back a little further. Delivered from evil priests, from Eli and his wicked sons. Delivered from the evil, destructive chaos of the period of the judges. When the Lord saves David from death and puts him on a throne, David himself personally experiences that, and everybody whose wagon is hitched to him experiences that. 
Everybody fastened to Him is also rescued, and everybody beneath Him enjoys the glory of His reign. Everybody who is in David experiences, thank God Eli doesn't run this place anymore. Thank God Saul doesn't run this place anymore. Thank God all the enemies all around us are powerless and now beneath us. Thank God that we are not at each other's throats and destructive and killing each other. Thank God for David's reign all given by God to him. Everybody who's in David experiences the salvation that David experiences. Which is exactly what Hannah prayed for back at the very beginning of this whole story. You could go back and look at that in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But she prays things like, The Lord lifts up the poor and needy and makes them to sit with the princes, but the wicked He will cut off. The adversaries of the Lord broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. Some similarities of this passage. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and give strength to His King and exalt the power of His anointed. That's where her song ends. The people lifted up as the wicked are cast down. And when does that happen? When the Lord lifts up His King, His anointed, and gives Him power. So that's all in the text. That's in the text here. That's in the the larger text of Samuel. God saves His King. He provides the salvation that the King's people need. That's in the text. And theologically, we have to think about that too because that's what's happened in a greater way when God saved the great Son of David, Christ. So where it comes to us. When we see... David here and connect it ahead through the story to the son of David, the righteous one delivered from death and set on the throne to rule. Oh. Oh. What a blessing to you. You who are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, in other words, if you are not a Christian, what I'm talking about here is is possible for you. It's, it's on the table in front of you if you will grab it. But it's not yours yet. You must trust Christ to find this deliverance that you need, that we all need, because we all are born and raised, we grow up, live, and then die in a world that is full of trouble plagued with evil at every turn. Much of that we are simple victims under. But not to be confused, it it also lives in us and we are perpetrators too. That's the world that we live in. And every one of us needs this deliverance, this saving from evil, from enemies. They are all around, yea, even within. And what I'm talking about here is is on the table in front of you if you will trust Christ, surrender yourself to Christ. But Christian, oh, oh, what a salvation. In Christ, We people who are in desperate need, who live facing a world out there with all kinds of evil that impacts us in ways that range from the horrific to just the troublesome. We who face the the struggle that goes on inside of our own hearts with evil. We who find ourselves constantly knowing this and living here, grieved over the gap. I know whose I am and how I'm supposed to be and what I, what, what's coming, but I live here or here. Oh, We who see that and struggle with that inside of ourselves and find there to be a constant battle there. Oh! What a salvation. What a deliverance. You are, Christian, in Christ. 
wagon hitched to Him. Where He goes, you follow. He passes through trouble and is saved from it. He comes out on the other side raised to reign, and so are you with Him. So everything, everything that God the Father has poured out on God the Son, it's, it's like you are connected to a faucet, screwed onto the end of it, and everything that runs through the faucet runs into you in Christ. Passes through Him, comes to you. Life. Indeed, first and foremost, we must consider saved from the penalty of sin. Absolutely. Bless His holy name for that. He saved you. Not because of righteous works that you had done, but He saved you though a rebel. He reached down, poured out grace on you, brought you to life, put your sin on Christ. Put his life in you. Saved you from the condemnation, from the penalty of sin. Yes. But what I mean to emphasize is day by day by day, and then finally in the end, he saves you from every attack, from every trouble, from every trial, all the way to the end when he saves you from it all permanently, forever. What a blessing! Now, that does not mean, obviously, it does not mean that He saves you from the presence of the attacks now. He saves you from their destructive power. Christian, what's at stake? What's at stake in your life? What's really at stake in your life when the enemy assails you, when the trouble... And I, and I need to be necessarily vague here because they are legion, the enemies... What's at stake here in, in the, the horrific, the, the physical assault on your body? What's at stake here in the troublesome traffic? What's really at stake behind those two extremes of trouble and evil in this world? What's not really at stake is your physical health or your appointment schedule. He doesn't need to save you to an orderly appointment schedule. He doesn't actually need to save your physical body because it's actually going to perish anyway, right? Now, I, I, I very much get, I very much understand that I'm treading on some thin ice here. Please allow me, please allow me the room to speak generically about the horrific. And if you want to talk specifically about what you've experienced, I would be more than happy to talk later in more, in more detail. But I need to, to make some concepts clear here. He does not need to deliver our physical bodies because they will all perish anyway. Gloriously to be made new one day. He will deliver us from death, but not usually, probably not before death. What's really at stake in the extremes from the horrific to the bothersome? What's really at stake there behind that? You get a clue if you, if you channel your thinking through 1 Peter chapter 1. What's really at stake in 1 Peter 1? Though now, if necessary, grieved by various trials, so that your tested genuine faith may be proved genuine, may result in praise and glory and honor when Christ comes. What's really at stake behind that? Your faithful holding to God. That's the heart of the attack. And He has saved you. Saved you. Saved you in that. You are a secure believer. That, that is a foundational, gigantic piece of good news. You are a believer. So now what gets, what gets fought over is for you to hold to a reality, not, not a question. Good news. 
He actually has saved you. So now you, you fight from a secure place. You fight from a place that is, that is wide, with stable feet, strong and mighty, with a real shield and a real sword, all by His power, and the enemy will crash down before you. So then He can say to you, with that kind of equipping, He can give you the command, believe, fight, having given the power. That's good news. You are engaged in a war which you will win. So fight. Does it seem like I'm talking in a circle there? It can sometimes seem like I'm talking in a circle there. Well, why tell me to fight if I'm going to win? Let's, let's just have a, have a soda and watch. No. The command to fight is how you win. David has to pick up the sword and run these guys through. With the muscle and the skill given to him by God, you have to fight. And the good news is you can fight because God has delivered you and will never abandon you nor leave you nor forsake you. You have to pick up the weapon given by Him. Wield it in the power given by Him to find the victory given by Him. And the good news is it's all right there in you. There's no question, is it or not? It is. So in faith, step out and fight. That's tremendously good news. In Christ, you are a blessed, beloved one. There is no attack that will triumph over you. No weapon that will succeed against you. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. Victory is yours. Fight. In Him you have salvation. This is a great truth. But I, boy, I need to move on to the last point. <laughs> Which I'll be very brief with. I need to say one more point about the other point. Um, when I said earlier about psalms and how you must meditate on them, I'm, I'm preaching there something about God's deliverance for you that really must be meditated on. You, I highly encourage you, take this psalm and sit with it. You can take a line... You delivered me from strife with my people. Take that line. He trains my hands for war. Take that line. You gave a wide place for my steps under me. My feet did not slip. Take that line. Take any of these lines and think. Praise. Apply it to a particular challenge that you face and say, but this is what the Lord has done for me right in the presence of my enemy. Giving me a wide place with secure footing. I am not in danger here, actually. It feels like it. Take any one of those lines and meditate on that with the particular issue you face. You have to do that for the Psalms to work in you what, what their, their fullness can be. But I move on to the third point, which I'll be brief with. I've isolated this one to make something really clear, which I think helps us embrace God's work, His saving work. Here's the last point. The Lord is passionate to save His people. The Lord is passionate to save His people. There is a distinct emphasis in the middle of this psalm on the faithfulness of the Lord to, to be what He is and to do what He says. You have dealt with me. 
like you said you would with those who walk faithfully and come with you. Okay, great. That's an important thing, very crucial for us in, in building trust in us, in Him. He is faithful to keep His Word. However, it is possible for someone to be completely faithful in keeping a promise while also being completely uninterested in the recipient of that promise. Two business people can make a deal. A businesswoman can promise to deliver 100 widgets to the other guy next Tuesday and can do so faithfully on schedule and not care about him at all, not even remember his name. That's faithful. But there's more here than that in God. There's passion. That's the point of all of the colorful, powerful language in verses 8 to 16. If you look at the text again, you could go from verse 7 down to 17. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. 17. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. That fits just perfectly, seamlessly. It'd be just fine. It would communicate the point. What would be missing? The thunder. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. That David pestered him and disturbed his slumber. No. Why is he angry? Angry. It says later, uh, the rebuke, this is the end of verse 16, the rebuke of the Lord. Why is God angry? Because someone dares to attack the son of his delight. And he is angry that someone would dare to attack, to bring evil assault on the one that he loves. Angry. So he rises up and splits the earth thunder and smoke and lightning bolt arrows to strike down and destroy that which dares attack the one that is the object of his delight. I wonder if you realize which camp you are in. You are the object of his delight, and he is angry that evil would assault you. Now, it doesn't look like that. Most of the time, you can read David's deliverance over decades and not even believe there's any God. Because stuff just happens. You know, the spear missed. Missed again. The messenger came, the Philistines have invaded. David fled out of the city just in time before Saul's army came, etc., 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 etc. You can read all that and not even think there is a God. But this is told to us so that we understand behind the scenes there is a God and He has some, some chips in this game. He is for you in a, a radical, passionate way. Not in a cold and detached, legal, formal, just, right, truthful, honest way. With emotion. He is a mighty warrior at battle for you. Angry that evil assaults you. Angry that evil has marred his good creation it is indeed under His will. It is indeed fulfilling His purposes. It is allowed for today for a time, but it is on a timer. And it will be wiped clean. You need to see the holy fire that burns in your God as He rebukes it at your defense. 
as he looks at the cross at which he crucified it. The love that is in that fury, a scream out to you. The love that is in the fury, the love of Christ for you, that he bore that fury for you. The love of God that raised His Son and you in Him. The love of God that is going to send Christ back one day to burn the earth clean and then make it all new. You must see that. There is a great intense passion to rid your existence of all evil and to bring you into glory in His Son, glorious and mighty, What a salvation He has won for you. For this you should praise Him. People of God, do you see this? We'll pray that you do. Let's pray. Oh God, please give us eyes to see the intensity of Your passion to set us free from evil. The complexity of the topic is is vast. We will never plumb the depths of it. But give us some clear sight of the salient point of your passion to free us from evil, to deliver us from all assault and to deliver us to a throne, to make us more than conquerors in Christ who loves us. So Lord, I pray thanking You that You've delivered us from evil and asking You to to deliver us from evil. Thanking You that You have put us in Christ and have given us victory and asking You to give us power to fight victoriously. Fill Your people's hearts and minds with truth, please, Lord. Build Your church. Bring honor to Your name. Pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, be glorified. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.